Good morning. Hi. <laughs> As you can tell, we're going to do something a little bit different today. Um, a couple of months ago, uh, Karina, my wife, and I had the opportunity of uh, having some kind of like a retreat with our pastors, Mark and Laura Shook. We went to the mountains together. To me, that is literally a spiritual retreat because you're so disconnected from everything else. And, and, you know, we had hours to talk, we had hours to pray, to dream, uh, and, and we had hours to consider the challenges that we're facing, that the church is facing. And I don't mean this church, I mean the church, okay? And, uh, you know, those reflections in my head are dangerous because then God talks to me and I have no choice but to come and share the reflections with you. And my intention today, just so you know, it's to make you reflect on your life, okay? Um, I heard a version of what we're about to do with these three chairs. Uh, I heard it from John Maxwell. That dates me. <laughs> this was about 29, 30 years ago. Um, ever since, I've heard different versions of this way of explaining it. Um, I have actually heard pastors you know, claim that they wrote it, but it was John Okay, we, we thank John for his idea, all right? <laughs> um, uh, I don't remember the exact words that he used, but I remember very clearly the idea, and this is what we're going to do today. So let me pray for us, and I'll explain to you what this means. Father, um, I just want to thank you for this opportunity to share the word with your family here on earth, with this beautiful family of community of faith. Um, I know, Lord, that many of us here today what we need is a humble heart. So will you please humble us right now? Open our heart. Let us receive your word. And may your word do its job and transform us radically. Put ourselves in your hands in the beautiful name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay. See, there is something very interesting that the Bible shows us that happens between generations. Okay. One generation to the next to the next. And today we're going to use these three chairs to you know, exemplify, you know, what happens in these three generations. Uh, one of the examples that we can see of the external impact of the change in generations, we can see it uh, with what happens after Joshua leaves the people of Israel. If you remember, Joshua was the man that God left in charge of the people of Israel when Moses died, okay? At the end of his life, he's kind of giving his parting words to, to the people of Israel in Joshua chapter 24. And this is the words, these are the words that he says. It, he, he says it in more than one way, but basically this is what he's telling them. Verses 14 and 15 say, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua was committed to serving the Lord. If you study the life of Joshua, you're going to see that he was a very successful leader. He was probably one of the most successful leaders that the people of Israel ever had. You know, under the guide of God and the guidance of God and, and his leadership, they entered into the promised land. They conquered all the promised land, and he divided the land among the different tribes, the 12 tribes, and then among all the families. You know, he was very successful. And the reason why he was so successful is because he lived 
an intimate relationship with God every day of his life. Read the book of Joshua, and you'll see how for everything Joshua always consulted God because he was in an intimate relationship with him. Now, what happens when Joshua dies? We see the second generation when we move to the book of Judges, which is the book right after Joshua. In Judges chapter 2, verse 7, it says, And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua, in all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. So you see the difference there. Joshua is a person that lived an intimate relationship with God, but then comes the elders who outlived them, who had seen him live his life in that way. See, they didn't necessarily live in the same intimate relationship, but they have seen the great things that God had done through the intimate relationship that Joshua had with him. But then comes another generation, you know, and, and this is what happens in this third generation. We move just three verses in, in the book of Judges, Judges 2 verse 10. It says, and all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, which means they passed away. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. So here comes a third generation, and they know nothing about God and nothing about what he has done. Why? Because no one told them. See, this past generation saw the great works, but didn't take the time to pass it on to the next generation. So this generation had never heard of God, had never heard of what God had done for Israel. And you remember what happens with that generation? You know, if you read the book of Judges, you're going to be surprised. The era of the judges is one of the darkest periods of times in the history of Israel. Horrible things happen, you know, and, and they can be best described by the most representative phrase of that book, which is, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Translation, they did whatever they wanted, whatever they felt like, which sounds very much like our society today, by the way. But anyway, so we see the impact that happens, the leadership, of three different generations in their lives and in the lives of the people around them. But I want you to see what happens in the hearts of the people in different generations. And this we're going to see when we analyze three generations, King David, King Solomon, and King Rehoboam. What a name. I've been struggling with his name, Rehoboam. Okay. Um, we're gonna see the heart of the first two in 1 Kings uh, chapter 11, verse 4, it says, As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord, his God, as the heart of David, his father, had been. So you see the difference between the two of them. David had been a person who had a fully devoted heart to God. And then comes Solomon, who, because of his disobedience, because if you read those, you know, uh, Kings, First uh, Kings, ten and eleven, God instructs him and says, "Do not marry with women of these four nations around you, because otherwise they're going to push you to follow their gods." He disobeys, so he starts worshiping. Besides knowing God and knowing who God is, he also starts worshiping other gods. He actually builds temples for his wives to worship these other gods who God had told him not to. And this example, what does it do in his son? I don't know if you have read the story, but what happens when Solomon dies? See, Solomon had been living this luxurious life, 
because he was taxing the people incredibly high. They, he was killing them with taxes. So when Solomon dies, this one guy comes and says to Solomon, please lower the taxes. You're killing us with taxes. And the first thing that this guy does, it's a smart move. We can see it in 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 6. It says, the king Rehoboam consulted the elders who had served his father Solomon during his lifetime. How would you advise me to answer these people, he asked. So see, the first thing he does is a smart thing. He goes with wise, godly men who had worked for his father and says, what would you do? And what these wise people say to him is, lower the taxes. They're going to love you if you lower the taxes. But he doesn't do that. Look at what he did. In verse 8, it says, but Rehoboam rejected the advice the elders gave him and consulted the young men who had grown up with him and were serving him. So instead of listening to godly people, he goes with his friends who had grown up with him, who were as young as he was, as inexperienced as he was, and he does what they tell him. And you know what they tell him to do? They say, no, the other way around. You have to show the people that, that if your father was a big person, you're bigger than him. You have to prove them that your little finger is thicker than his waist. Raise the taxes. And he does. And if you read that chapter, in that very chapter, what happens next is 10 of the 12 tribes rebel against the king and the nation separates in two. Israel splits into two different nations and it will never go back to be one whole nation ever again. 10 tribes in the north, two tribes in the south. Years later, Assyria is going to come and destroy the 10 tribes of the north. And then later, Babylon is going to come and destroy the two tribes on the south. But they never again were a whole nation. So that's the impact on the people, but I want you to pay attention to what happened in their hearts. See, chair number one, which is this one, I put this in the notes, are people that have a devoted heart. You know, David had a devoted heart. What does that mean? They put God in first place always. See, uh, we know that David was not a perfect person. Actually, he committed some crimes that were horrible. But the Bible calls him a man after God's own heart. Why? Because he was never confused about who was the real king. God was the king. He always put him in place. He always gave him in place. And even when he sinned and was confronted, he repented and ran to God and asked for forgiveness. So God was number one, devoted heart. Chair number two are the Solomons of this world who are people that have a divided heart. See, they know God. They know and probably even love God, but they also chase other gods, actually idols. Their heart is divided. So these are people that in many areas of their lives, you know, when, when the values of God and the values of the world that are clashing in their hearts collapse, you know, they, they are crashing, the world tends to win. So these are people that come to church, unless there's a good game or an outing with friends. You know, comes the hour and they run out because they fulfill their duty of showing up. They think God passes list in heaven. And it's kind of delicate to say it in this way because it sounds like being a good Christian means you have to come every Sunday and then you're a good Christian. But you know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about your priorities. 
What it shows the most is in your obedience. Because when something comes against your interest in the Bible, you know, the world tends to win. And that's chair number two. And then we have chair number three. These are people that have a dead heart to God. Spiritually speaking, their heart is not open to God or to God's people. Their heart might be open to their friends, you know, to their interest, but not to God. But the real question here is, how does this impact your life, every area of your life, sitting in each one of these three chairs? We have to start at the foundation of everything and build from then up. Let's talk about the Bible. If you sit in chair number one, you think that the Bible is the word of God. Therefore, it is the truth. And you align everything in your life with what the Bible says. Always. Does it mean that you understand everything that the Bible says? Not really. I mean, you would need to be God to understand the Bible 100%. But it does mean this, that when you run into things that you do understand, you obey. And when you run into things that you just don't understand and are hard to swallow, you don't question them. You don't think, this is wrong. You think, I must be wrong. There must be something that I need to understand. I need to ask God for revelation. I need to seek some people to help me understand, maybe buy a book, because this is the truth. So this is right, and I might be wrong. But they live with the Bible as their authority, okay? Now, how about chair number two? See, chair number two is very interesting because these are people that call themselves Christians. They have a Bible. They probably read their Bible. They probably come to church, but their Bible is not necessarily their authority. See, when it comes to certain things, you know, the Bible loses. So, these are people that are living together with girlfriend or boyfriend that are having sexual relationships outside of marriage, that if it's required in business situations, they may lie a little bit. You know, when I was a teenager in Mexico, uh, a movie came out in Mexico that was called Thou Shall Not Steal Unless Very Necessary. And, and that's kind of how these guys live, you know? They're like some vegetarians who never eat meat unless they really like it, you know, then, you know. Now, chair number three, see, this one is interesting because these guys are not Christians. So, chances are they don't have a Bible. They have no interest in the Bible. They don't want to know about the Bible. And not all the people that sit in chair three are the same, as we will talk more later on. But this, you know, some of the people in this chair are the ones that laugh at this too. You know, like, how can you be believing in this obsolete book and rule your life by it? So they're not interested in the Bible. And the problem with that, and the problem with the divided heart, is your values. See, if you're sitting in chair number one, all your values come from the Bible. You know what your values are? See, there is a subconscious list inside of you that ranks everything that is around you in order of importance. And every decision that you make in your life, it's value-driven. Whatever is more important always wins. 
When you're making your decisions, you don't even notice this, but your values make decisions for you. The person that sits in this chair, his or her values come strictly from the Bible. Their value, their principles of behavior that the Bible teaches. So what happens is, regardless of what happens in their life, doesn't matter if circumstances change, if they're going through a tough time with money or somebody gets sick, or it doesn't matter. They always act the same way because their values come from the Bible and the Bible doesn't change. So their values are very consistent. Wait until the end, then see we'll clap, okay? <laughs> you, we'll see if you... They're, they have consistent values. You know what that is? People knows what to expect from you because you always respond the same way. How about people that are sitting here? See, the problem with this is they have a divided heart. So sometimes they respond in one way, and sometimes they respond in a different way. See, these people, their heart is one single room open to God. Every area of their lives, it's ruled by God. But the people that sit in chair number two, they have compartments in their heart. So they have a room in their heart for their relationship with God, which might happen on Sunday mornings, maybe in the morning before you go to work, you have a time with God. You, you maybe go to a small group, but then you have another room for your marriage, if you're married, you know, for your children, if you have kids. They have another one for work or school. They have one for fun. Actually, sometimes they have more than one for fun, one public, one private, you know? And their behavior changes or their values change according to the circumstances. So their values are inconsistent. People don't know what can they expect from you because you respond different depending on what changes around you. Now, what happens in chair number three? with the values. See, these people, their values come from the world only. They don't believe in the Bible. So strictly, they come from society. And I don't know if you have noticed this, but the values in society go changing like fashions throughout time. See, my father used to tell me that when he was a young teenager uh, in Mexico, what was stigmatized was drinking. He says that, you know, they would be in a party and somebody would say, like, some drunken people came in and they would be like, oh, you know, the drunken people, and they would be afraid, you know? When I was a teenager, what was stigmatized in Mexico was smoking pot. You know, in Mexico, they called them marihuanos. And we would be in a party and they said, like, some marihuanos just came in the party, and I would imagine in my mind somebody coming with a machete to kill everyone, you know? That's the idea that, you know, later on they stigmatize divorce. You know, they, fashions, they change. Now tell me, are those values today seen as wrong by society? It's the most normal thing in the world. They are legalizing pot everywhere. Divorce is seen as the most normal thing. Everyone drinks and just, you know, not to confuse you, the Bible doesn't say if you have a glass of wine, you're sinning. It says if you get drunk and lose your senses and something else controls you, you're sinning. 
But what I want you to see is these people, their values change with society. And you know what's the worst part? If society says something is right, then to them is right. But if society says it's wrong, to them is wrong. Do you realize the amount of values that our Bible teaches that today society considers wrong? And if you even preach them in certain countries, they put you in jail. They call you a bigot. And how many things are there that the Bible says, no, 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 that's wrong, that's wrong. And people now in society says, like, no, that's fine. So these people, you know, values change with society. What society says goes, they say goes. What's the problem with that? Values affect absolutely everything in your life. All decisions that you make are affected by your values. So let's analyze a few other things, you know, probably three uh, more uh, prominent things in your life in terms of this. How does a person that sits in chair one sees work? See, a person that sits in this chair knows that God created you, okay? And he put in you exactly what he needed for you to use for his purpose. He has a purpose for you. So they see their work as a calling. Actually, we used to use a word that it's no longer, you know, normal. We used to call it vocation. You remember when they used to say, no, this guy has the vocation to be a doctor or a policeman or a teacher or a pastor. You know, he has this calling, this vocation. So these people, see, see, everything in terms of that calling. They know God made them that way on purpose, and they allow God to set the direction of their lives. They actually ask for direction based on the way he formed them, but it's a calling. And you know what's their main goal as far as work and as far as life? Extending the kingdom of God. They believe that through their work, they have to glorify God. They have to shine with God's light at work. And this is why some people, you know, that are sitting in chair number one, make a lot of money, and they use it for the glory of God. And there's some people that sit in this chair that barely make any money, but they are fulfilled because they're using their lives for the glory of God. That's chair number one in terms of work. A calling. What, what happens in chair number two? Which I don't know if you have noticed that these chairs look different. Have you noticed what this one looks like? What does it mean work for people in chair number two? It's not a calling. They are not expecting a calling from God. You know what they're expecting? A blessing. So it's different than these guys because these guys would say, Father, show me the road and bless it. These guys say, I'm picking this road, now bless it. The other one is the blessing. So they don't necessarily pick based on their shape, you know, how God made them. Sometimes they pick the popular career of the moment, you know, whatever is going to make me enough money, because you know what's the goal for these people? For these ones was extending the kingdom of God. For these people, it's financial security, having a good life, you know, maybe pay for my kids' college, have a good retirement. Now think about this. Are any of those things wrong? Is there anything wrong with wanting to provide your family with a good life or paying for your kids' school or, or planning to have a good retirement. Actually, the Bible teaches you to plan for those things. You know what's the problem? 
The problem is that if those things are the number one value on your list, you will break values of the Bible in order to get to them. They can't be the number one value. They're God, things that God will give you, you know, according to his plan, and you will be fulfilled if you extend his kingdom. But these people forget about the kingdom and just care about their kingdom because the world, it's in their heart. Part God, part, the, you know, the world. And they think that if they do certain things, God owes them the other things. How about the people in chair number three? See, people in chair number three, to them is not a calling. It, it, it's not a blessing that they're expecting. They don't believe in God. To them, the world is a competition. Work is a stepladder. You know, and their main objective is money and power. Not everyone is the same. Because, you know, depending on their favorite value of the world, they will be different. There's people that their objective is a lot of money. There's people that their objective is fame. Or, or, or power, or pleasure. So they just pursue that, and since they do not believe in the values of the Bible, they will pursue that in whatever way they need to. doesn't matter. All they have to do is reach that goal. They don't believe in the afterlife anyway. So it's as much as I can today. That's work. Let's get to things that are a little bit deeper and sometimes more painful. How about marriage see people that are sitting in chair number one they think of marriage as a covenant covenants cannot be broken see the original marriage ceremony was a blood covenant unbreakable so these people know you know that when they get into marriage it's forever it's for the rest of their lives and they know that their wife or husband, you know, first of all, is God's most important tool to transform you. See, there's going to be trouble. Paul says, in marriage, you'll have trouble. I want to save it to you. Don't get married, you know? Literally. <laughs> we all know. There's no marriage without problems. But you know what problems do to a godly marriage? If you go through it together, following God's guidance, you grow up. You grow up together. And these people know that. So they know that they have to be there no matter what, no matter what changes. And that's one of the most important things that need to happen for a marriage to succeed. Your mate needs to know that you're not going anywhere. Because otherwise, when there's problems, they will be afraid to confront you, you know, and then there won't be growth. They have to be free to say, hey, you're doing this, and you're doing this, and we need to change it, and you need to be honest and see it, and allow God to change you. But that's how they see marriage. See, they consider marriage their most important ministry. That's marriage. Now, how about chair number two? For chair number two, uh, this is not a covenant. It's a contract. So there are things that you have to do, and there's things that I have to do, and if you do them, and I do them, then we're fine, but if you don't do them, I'm gonna get out. See, that is the problem with a divided heart. When your heart's divided, that means part of your heart belongs to the world, 
And that part, you know what it does? It screams to you, saying, this is about you, about your happiness, you know, about your control, about the things that you need, and then you demand things. You better do these things for me, or I'm going to get out. And the amount of people that sit in chair number two is the reason why, statistically, divorce rate, it's almost the same inside of the church than outside. Because they don't believe that it's a pact. They only believe that it's a contract. Now, chair number three. <laughs> to these people, marriage, if they get married, oftentimes it's just to fulfill a requisite. You know, I have had guys tell me in, in Cancun, I'm only going to get married to keep my, my girlfriend's mother at peace, because he keeps nagging us. Not even the girlfriend, the girlfriend's mother, you know? So the ones that, you know, don't believe in marriage, they will do that if they have to. But m most of the people nowadays are not even getting married. And they say the weirdest thing. You know, have you heard them? People say, it's just that I don't believe in marriage. And I want to ask them, what part? What, what part do you not believe in? Because these are people that moving together, you know, guy and a girl, you know, they're sharing their bed. Sometimes they buy a house together. You know, they have children, cats and dogs, you know, pay the bills together, but they don't believe in marriage. So which part is it that they don't believe in? Do you see what they're saying? I don't believe in the commitment part. I don't believe in this promise of I'll be here until I die. So just tell me, who in their right mind marries someone that out of the gate says, but I might be out of this in six months? You know, or leaves with someone that says, like, that commitment thing, you know? Because eh. that's what they're saying when they're in, in this chair number three. And then comes the, the most painful one. Parenting. See, parents that sit in chair number one understand that God gave you those kids. The Bible calls them an inheritance from God. And you know that your most important job is to help them to know God, to love God, to understand that that life is lived with God. You know what is the main objective of parents that sit in this chair? Godly kids. Kids that understand chair number one. Is it not our responsibility to also prepare them for life? You know, make sure that they have a career if, if you can afford it and show them what the world is so they're right? Yes. But remember, to people in chair number one, everything is ministry. Everything. And this is what they pass on to their children, because the Bible tells us, talk to them about God in the morning and in the middle of the day and at night and when you're having breakfast, lunch and dinner, every opportunity that you have. And you know what they produce? They produce secure children because they are secure parents. And I'll tell you why. Did you know that your security comes from your values? See, if a person values money, as the most important thing, when they have money, they feel secure. 
they feel relaxed. But if they lose that money, they feel insecure. They are anxious because their most important value has disappeared. If what you most value is your position, you're the owner, the manager. The, you know, when, when you have that, you feel secure. But if it disappears, or if you're in an environment where no one knows that you're the manager, then you, your security disappears. Think about fame. There's people that their security comes from the fame that they enjoy. Think of athletes. While they are playing the game, they feel supermen, but the moment that they are out of the game, they become nobody. Because all their security was there. But what happens if your security comes from the values that come from the Bible? From the fact that you know that your character is the right character and you're going to behave correctly no matter what changes, then it doesn't matter what changes, your security remains. Because it's based on something unchangeable. And if you pass that on to your kids, you produce secure kids, solidly grounded on the Bible. What happens in chair number two? See, for these people, the problem is the confusion of values that they have in their heart, okay? But the problem with these people is, see, they're not secure. They're hopeful. So I hope they do good. Because they have shown them different ways of responding before life. Some of it godly, some of it worldly. And you're saying, I hope they do the godly thing. You're expecting to do what you say and not what you do. But they've been seeing you. So you know what that produces? Instead of secure children, it produces confused children. Because they don't understand why they come here and hear one thing, and then they go home and they see another. Your inconsistency will affect them, and you will inherit it to them. And of course, chair number three, parents that sit in this chair, what they produce is lost children. So they, they haven't seen any example of righteous living. See, in Cancun, we receive a lot of teenagers that come by themselves. Their families don't want to have anything to do with the church, but they meet one of our youth, you know, at school or wherever, you know, at sports, and they invite them and they come. And when we talk to them, we realize that these poor children don't have a single point of reference in their life. Their parents are divorced, they're both dating, they're in the world completely. You know, so they have no reference of how to live life. So they're very lost. So the main objective for work for people in church number three is money, power, fame, and they pass the same on to their children and the same methods to acquire it. Now, this message clearly applies for everyone in this room. But I want to talk to men for a minute. And, and there's a reason for that. Um, when I was preparing for this sermon a few months ago, I, I heard a statistic that really made me tremble. Did you know that if the first member of a family that accepts Christ, it's a kid in the family, 
only 6% of the cases, the whole family will give their lives to Christ. If it is the mother, then 20% of the cases, the whole family will become Christian. But if it's the father, 93% of the cases become Christian. See, we have a problem in our society, and I don't think it's a secret. We can see it, right? See, and, and the problem is God gave men the leadership in their homes. And the family is the building block of society. So if the family collapses, society collapses. And all the problems that we're having come from the values that are driving our society, which means the leadership that should be taken spiritually at home is not being taken by the men as it should. We're not taking our responsibility seriously. We're not leading spiritually. We have abdicated that sometimes to our wife and sometimes to no one. I hear parents say, I'm not going to impose my beliefs in my children. What do you think is your job? That's precisely what you're supposed to do. That's what the Bible teaches us. And then you start hearing, and this is a shame on us men, because women start saying, this world has been run by men for a long time and it's not going so well. So the solution to this problem is women. Listen, thank God for all the women that have had no choice but to take the leadership in their home. Thank God for them, honestly. We have a few families in Cancun that I know of that the family is together, but the wife has had no choice but to take leadership because the husband is not doing it. And in my experience of 20 years of pastoring the church, it never works. It's dysfunctional and the wife is crying for the husband to take leadership. They don't want it because it doesn't work. So we need to step in. <laughs> Frustrating. Now, I'm not saying that these two chairs are people that are good people and people in chair three are evil people because it's not true. You probably know people in chair number three that you would confuse them with people in church two or one. I have friends like that. You know, they love their wives well, they educate their kids correctly, they're honest people, they pay their workers properly. And you might ask, so what's wrong with that? Isn't that good enough? There's two problems with that. First of all, we all remember everything you do it's in search of happiness. These guys are trying to do that to feel happy. And the Bible tells us that unless you have an intimate relationship with God, it doesn't matter what else you achieve, you will never be happy. And that's the reason why the friends that I love, that I have, that are in chair number three, are always asking me, how can they be so successful and so empty? You can't do it without God. But the worst part is, People in church number three, regardless of how good they're doing, they're robbing God of his glory because they take the credit. They don't believe in him, so they say, look what I have built. So let me finish with three questions. 
Which one of these chairs do you think produces the most stress? See, it's not chair number one. And, and, and it, it's not chair number one, not because people in chair number one don't have problems, don't suffer. You know, there's no really dark situations in our lives. No. It's because people in chair number one believe in God. They trust God. And sometimes, you know, we find ourselves crocking our knuckles in, in anguish and, and because we have the habit we go to God. So, Lord, you have a lot of problems. He said he would carry our problems. So you go and put them in his hands, and the Bible says that his peace, which surpasses all understanding, protects your heart. So it's not that we don't have problems. It's that we continuously go to God, and we lift our shield of faith and stop all the fiery darts of the enemy and we can go through life with a lot less stress besides the fact that the more you follow the values of the Bible the less problems you get into could it be chair number three the most stressful one honestly most people in chair number three not all of them but most of them they only care about themselves so every time there's a little bit of stress in any situation, they just get out. That's why they keep changing you know, jobs, marriages, city. And that's why they never grow. Because it's going through things, holding God's hand that helps you grow. But they always run away from pain. If it's not fun, if it's not comfortable, like get out. So they're not very stressed. If it's stressful, they quit. The most stressful chair is chair number two. Because people that sit in this chair are trying to do the impossible. They are trying to keep God happy and the world happy. That's not possible. Jesus said, you cannot. He didn't say, it's really hard. He said, you cannot serve two masters. Pick. This is what Joshua said. Pick. Who are you going to serve? You can't serve both. And that's what you're trying to do if you're sitting in this chair. And it's exhausting and it's stressful, it's tiring. That's the most stressful one. This is why a lot of people in chair number three don't want to know anything about the church. Because they see the people in chair number two and they say like, why am I going to want that? You're just like me. You're just hanging your sign of Christian. Second question. Where do you think that the kids of parents of each one of these chairs ends up in what chair do you think they finish? I'll tell you honestly, right out of the gate, there are no guarantees. Nothing is 100% certain. If you sit in chair number one, you give your kid the best odds at staying in chair number one. If you teach them to live it and experience it, chances are they will stay in chair number one. The problem is that once they grow up and they are outside of your house, that's when you're responsible, when they're in there. But once they leave, they are responsible for the influences that they allow in their hearts, like what happened to Solomon. There's the example. David was in chair one, but Solomon moved to chair number two. But you give them the best odds 
What happened to parents that are sitting in chair number three? I mean, there's no guarantees, again. There's people that I have seen sitting in chair number three that end up in chair number one. Do you know what's one example of that? My wife. When I preached this sermon, when I came down, she said, I was in chair number three when we met, and my parents were in chair number three. And she moved to one. But there, the odds are the other way around. You give them the less possible odds of moving to chair number one. God may have mercy on them and bring them. And one day you're going to be giving an account to God of what you did with your kids. The tragedy is chair number two. Because most of the children of people in chair number two, statistically speaking, end in chair number three. Because of the incongruencies that they see in their homes makes them angry. And they walk away thinking that it's all a lie. And you know what's the sad part? In surveys that I have made of the church in the United States, 77% of the people are sitting in chair number two. Are people that confess that they sometimes read their Bible. Some of them never pray. They have no Christian friends. They go to church one or two times a month. And they're living half in the world and a little bit in heaven. So where are we sending our kids? The last question is, where are you sitting? And just so you know, God already knows. Okay? You don't have to try to convince him or me. I, mean, I am no one to judge anyone. But if you're sitting in chair number one, listen, we need you to get involved. We need more people like you. We need robots that will teach the next generation. If you sink here in chair number two, you need to repent. And remember, repent is not feeling bad about what has happened. This is not a guilt trip. Reflect on your life. If you're here, you need to repent. And you need help. You can't move from chair two to chair one the way I've been doing it today. Okay? It's not that simple. Your value system needs to change. And the only way that that can happen is if you go to God and say, God, help me. I want to be in chair number one, and I know it's a process, and you have to understand, God is okay with the process. He's patient, he's loving, but you need to go and say, I need to move to chair number one, help me, and then become serious about it. Start adopting disciplines, read your Bible, you know, pray, and you know what's super important? In a couple of weeks, there's going to be a push for you to join a small group. You need to surround yourself with people that are going in the same direction, that want to move towards this chair because the pull towards chair number three is too strong. And if you just stay still, when you notice, you're already there. There is no staying still. It's like swimming in the ocean. You stay still when you notice you're two miles away. And in the direction of the current, which is that way. Join a group. Surround yourself. Find people that are sitting in chair number one and ask them to help you. And if you're sitting in chair number three, 
listen to me. God loves you. And the proof of that is that you're hearing these words. If he didn't care for you, you think you'd be here? This is not a coincidence. He wanted you to hear this because he's calling you to him. Christ died in the cross so that you would have life. How much more do you need for him to prove his love for you? As a church, we're called to be light, to change society. That's impossible if you're not sitting in chair number one. Impossible. You need to move to this chair. Live for the glory of God and be fulfilled by that God that loves you. Let's pray. Let's pray. Father, uh, we thank you so much for your love and your patience. I thank you, Father, for my brothers and sisters that are uh, listening to these words right now, that are sitting in chair number one. Father, give them more strength. Give them more light. Keep them running the race, Father, because we know that that comes from you. For my brothers and sisters that are sitting in chair number two, Father, please, Father, may they repent today and start running towards you with all their heart. Touch their hearts, Father. Surround them with the right people to help them move into chair number one and enter into their hearts and destroy the barriers, Father. Break down all the walls and turn their heart into one single room that you may rule. And I ask you for the people that are sitting in chair number three. Have mercy on them, Father. Send your Holy Spirit right now to touch their hearts and pull them towards you. I ask you all these things, Father, in the beautiful name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Love you guys. I didn't mean to cry so much. <laughs> Amen. What an amazing word from Marco. And I think for any of us, no matter which seat we find ourselves in, there's a challenge and there's a next step. As we close today, I want to encourage you, some of our prayer team, uh, our volunteers and our staff is going to be up here at the front. And if you're in that seat and you're ready to change seats and you're ready to take that next step, I would encourage you to come on down and to pray with them. Also want to let you know that we do have the blood drive that's happening this weekend and next weekend. That's another opportunity for you to be a part. So family, we love you. I encourage you to come back on Wednesday for all our middle school and high school. We got reset night and of course it's prayer. So family, we love you and we'll see you next week.